Would you join me in prayer as we pray this morning before we open God's word? Father, you are such a loving, good shepherd. And we praise you for the opportunity you've given us, that you bend down to our understanding and you've given us your word through Jesus and through the Holy Scripture. And so we ask now, as your sheep, would you guide our hearts as uh, Jessica comes and gives us your word. We praise you for the preparation that you have put on her heart and the words that you have given her to speak. May she be your holy instrument this morning and guiding us, nourishing us for our journey of faith. We thank you for this time and for her gift. In your name we pray, amen. I am so delighted to be here with you this morning. I, I can't tell you what a joy it is to see former students leading church here. How blessed you are. Uh, just a little bit about me. I am here with my oldest daughter. My parents are here, and I've got a husband and three kids at home who wish they could be here. But it is a pandemic, and one of them is quarantining at home because of a close contact. So uh, I am just delighted to be here with you. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be reading from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7 today. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. Uh, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in a battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but in this time of pandemic, there's been an increase across the nation, but maybe in your own home too, I know in mine, of some binge-watching. Anybody doing a little binge-watching of television shows? It's okay to admit it. We all have a little extra time on our hands. Well, one of the shows that you might have seen has been, uh, it's called Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe. It actually was on a while back, but it has since uh, kind of made a resurgence. And in this show, Mike Rowe goes out to all of these different jobs that are important, essential, we couldn't do without them, 
but they're dirty, they're hard, they're challenging, and they're underappreciated. Here's just a couple of uh, the, the kind of jobs that Mike Rowe uh, has gotten involved in with dirty jobs. A bat cave scavenger, where they collect bat guano, which is the word for poop, to make some of the best fertilizer in the world. Avian vomitologist, that's where you collect owl throw up. A parade float dismantler, somebody's got to do it. A skull cleaner, a fuel tank cleaner. There are seasons of this, many episodes each, and they're great fun to see. And you see people hard at work doing important jobs that tend to be underappreciated. Well, if there were to be a Dirty Jobs Bible version, I think that Isaiah's call would have made the cut. Isaiah's job was to go to the leaders of Jerusalem and Judea and Judah and bring the word of the Lord to them. And it was always going to be a word of judgment and hope. All throughout the book of Isaiah, judgment and hope. And God said, you're going to speak to them, but they are not going to listen to you. You're going to speak so that their hearts are hardened, so that they will refuse the good news that you share with them. They will never hear. They will never see. They will never understand. And he was warning them, God was warning them through Isaiah that rebelling against God's covenant was going to come at a cost. To this sobering news in Isaiah's call, Isaiah said, how long, Lord? How long will this be my call? How long will this be my dirty job? And to that, God replied, until everything you know is gone. Until all the people that you love, the way of life as you know it, is gone. You will bring this message of judgment and hope. God will use the Assyrian and Babylonian empires to judge Israel for its idolatry and injustice. Man, that's a dirty job. But somebody needed to do it. Somebody needed to do it because... God loves his people so much that he didn't want any of us to live under the delusion that our cleverness or our strategies or our prowess were going to be what would get us our rescue. Our rescue was only going to come through God alone. And so he made his people low so that there would be no mistaking that it is God alone who rescues his people. God wants us to see that there is nothing that we can do or fail to do that will change his love for us. His rescue is coming. His rescue has come. And it's all God's doing. So our passage today refers to uh, both of these elements of judgment and hope. And it gives us an occasion to reflect together on this main idea. And this is our main idea for this morning. It's easy to despair when things look bleak. But God gives us reasons to rejoice. It's easy to despair when things look bleak. But God gives us reasons to rejoice. I am removing this loud earring for our benefit. <clears throat> so our passage this morning refers to, at the very beginning, you might have caught those couple of unfamiliar names, Zebulun and Naphtali, refers to 
humbling the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. These were tribal regions in the northern kingdom of Israel. At the time of this writing, Israel, which had been one kingdom, has long since been split into two, and there's a northern kingdom, and there's a southern kingdom. Isaiah is speaking to the southern kingdom. And yet he is prophesying about things that happened to the whole of Israel. And the situation around this historical reference to Zebulun and Naphtali was very bleak indeed. See, the Assyrians had been a formidable power in the ancient Near East for quite some time. They had ruled with might and power and with terror. And for a while, things had been quiet on the Assyrian front. But then, there was this new leader who usurped the throne of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III. Tiglath-Pileser was ruthless, and if you read about him in the history books, with great scholarly detachment and appreciation for his military prowess, people recognize that he was brilliant in his conquest. He knew how to expand his territory. And it was through terror and death. He continued the practices of his predecessors in the Assyrian Empire, where when you would come across a city and uh, put it under siege, any person that you captured would be killed. There were no captives. They would be killed and hoisted up on a tree in front of the walls of the city as a threat and a terror. And once a people were conquered, everyone was taken as slaves and they were deported to the reaches of the Assyrian Empire so that there would be no hope of coming back, of reclaiming your land, of being a people again. Your identity was pulled from you. Your lineage was destroyed. And one of his militaristic strategies was to force conquered people into military service. In fact, historians recognize this is how he conquered and expanded the Assyrian Empire, was by enlisting, by force of course, people that he'd conquered to serve on the front lines of his latest conquest. So that people who had been conquered were forced to do unto others what had been done unto them. Tiglath-Pileser III was a terror, and he was ruling the world at the time of Isaiah and the time of Ahaz, the king of Jerusalem and Judah, the time of our passage. Things looked bleak. Israel, to the north, was the most vulnerable in all of Israel, to Tiglath-Pileser's conquest. And Pekah, the king of Israel at the time of this uh, uh, prophecy that we're looking at today, Pekah, the king of Israel, knew he was vulnerable. And so he made an alliance with the king of Aram, Rezin, the king of Aram. And he tried to make an alliance with Ahaz, the king of Judah, because they thought, if we can just get enough people together, maybe we can stand against this terror 
Tiglath Pileser III. Maybe we can stand against him. Maybe things won't be so bleak if we just pull together in our own strength and might. But Ahaz, if you read about Ahaz, you know he wasn't actually that great of a king in the first place. But Ahaz was looking at this bleak situation, and he says, this doesn't seem like a good idea. I don't think that we're going to win. I don't think I want to join forces with you. <clears throat> and into that situation, Ahaz knew that if he stood against Assyria, he himself would probably, in the southern kingdom of Judah, would probably be threatened. And into this situation, God sends Isaiah with a message. I love this message. It's from chapter 7. He says, be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. I wish I had that on a magnet for my refrigerator right now. Be careful. Keep calm. And don't be afraid. But that sounded just plain crazy to Ahaz. That sounded unrealistic. That sounded like fairy tale talk. Rezin and Pekah, Isaiah said, those kings in the north, they want to tear you off the throne and they want to put someone on the throne instead who's going to join forces with them against Tiglath-Pileser III. And so Ahaz, you can imagine, feels like he's between a rock and a hard place. He's between Tiglath-Pileser III and he's between these other kings in the north who want to come against him. What's he going to do? Everything looks bleak. And here I just want to pause a second and recognize how bleak this must have seemed for the prophet Isaiah. Because remember, God told him, I will give you a word to bring, and they will never listen to you. So Isaiah knew that this word, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid, was going to be ignored. And that the promise that God could keep things safe was not going to happen. So Ahaz loses his nerve, because that's what Ahaz does. He's not careful, he does not keep calm, and he is really afraid. So he offers to make a deal with Tiglath-Pileser III to subject himself to this king of Assyria as his vassal, which basically means he was a puppet king. He had power, but not really, and he had to pay tribute. And ultimately, this opened the door to what became the ruin of the southern kingdom of Judah. But that's another story. So Tiglath-Pileser takes this deal with Ahaz, and Ahaz, in order to pay him his tribute, loots the temple of God of all its riches. Does that seem like a good idea? He loots the temple of God and brings these riches out to Tiglath-Pileser III. And Tiglath-Pileser III keeps up his end of the bargain and marches against Pekah, and resin, and in the course of doing that, destroys the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. Ahaz was at the root of the northern kingdom's destruction. It's easy to despair when things look bleak. It's easy to despair when the power of the world threatens you. It's easy to despair 
when it seems like there are no good choices. And it's easy to despair when the hope and the promises of God seem like a far-fetched fairy tale. Can we just pause here? Can we take a moment to recognize that in our own lives, there are things that might look bleak to us today? We are in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. The world hasn't seen anything like it for 100 years. Our nation is struggling with disunity and mistrust. A friend of mine, I just got news, had to lay off 70% of his team. And he's wondering if he's next. Another friend's mother died and he can't be at the funeral. Seniors are starting their last year of high school and they're alone. They can't be with their friends. It's a hard time. I'm sure that there are things in your life that look bleak. Maybe things that you share with friends and family. Maybe things that you can't share with anybody. And something looks bleak. It's easy to despair when things seem bleak, but into this darkness has shown a great light. Read with me Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled, God humbled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future he will honor me, honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now that's some good news. That's reason to rejoice. The first land in Israel to fall to a foreign power, the first to have its people deported to slavery, was also the first to witness the light of the world. That's how God works. In the place where the covenant seemed to shatter, God brought the covenant keeper. The first place, Matthew tells us in chapter 4, that Jesus went in his ministry was to Capernaum, which is in the land of Galilee of the Gentiles, by the way of the sea, along the Jordan. He went there in order to fulfill what Isaiah says. John, in his gospel, he knew Isaiah's prophecy, and he described Jesus as the light of the world. He described him as the light that shines in the darkness though the darkness has not understood it. And to borrow an idea from C.S. Lewis, Jesus himself is the light that we see, but he's also the light by which we see everything clearly. I'll say it again. Jesus himself is the light that we see, but he's also the light by which we see everything clearly. This understanding of the impact of light helps us make sense of what's described in Isaiah 9, verse 3, where he says, You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. 
They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing plunder. Consider what kind of joy this is, the images being used. Harvest and plunder. You can imagine it's the kind of joy where someone says, look at this. Look what is here. Do you see it? So much joy over the abundance of what's been provided. And it's with that joy, it's with that joy that God says he has brought light, but he helps us to see what he's done. He's enlarged the nation and he brings joy. Because Jesus has come, we see things more clearly. He's the light by which we see that God is still on his rescue mission. Still, even when things look bleak. Jesus illuminates a vision of history that gives us hope. And the way this text is constructed, it's clear that there are three reasons why people are rejoicing. By the way, that word joy is used three times, right? Three is a special number. It's a number of fullness. It's a number of emphasis. There's so much joy. And then there's three reasons given in the text in verse 4, 5, and then 6 and 7. Verse 4, for as in the day, this is a reason for joy, for as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. We should always pay attention when there's references to other historical moments in Israel's history because it's like God wants to say, do you remember what happened there? And in case we don't know what happened at Midian, let me briefly remind us. This is the story back in Judges where Gideon was a reluctant, <laughs> raised up as a reluctant judge to fight against Midian, who had been a terror to Judah and Israel. Remember, Gideon's the one who was like, are you sure you want me to do that? That doesn't sound like a good idea. Can you give me some signs? And then God does, and he says, can you give me some more signs? Gideon was reluctant. But God wanted to make sure that it was perfectly clear that his rescue mission is done through his power and his strength. And so when Gideon gathered the men together who were going to fight Midian, God said, too many. You've got too many. I need less. And so he calls out, Gideon calls out some people. And again, God says, too many. I need less. And so ultimately, it's 300 people who march against thousands in Midian's army. And it's so ridiculous and absurd and crazy and looks like a suicide mission, and they do it anyway because God said, I am going to save you. I will rescue you. And do you know what? He did. He did. And so God says, as in the days of Midian, I'm going to break your oppressor. And I'm going to do it in the same way that I did then, through my might and my strength and my power, out of my zeal, because I love you. That's how God saves us. God will free us from oppression. And it's so true and it's so sure that the prophet writes it in the past tense, even though it hasn't already happened. It's as good as done. Verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. 
Military boots, you would keep those in the closet for next time. That's what you would do with your armor and your weapons and your good boots. You would save them for next time. Because isn't there always going to be a next time? Isn't there always going to be more oppression and more trouble and more problems and more heartache? Don't we need to set aside the things that protect us? Pull them out later? God says, we can burn it all. Because there, a time is coming when you will not need to fight. When there will not be war and mistrust. A time is coming. God will end discord and violence. And finally, in verses 6 and 7, the third reason for all this joy. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase, the increase of his government, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. I love this last part. How's it all going to be done? The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God's passion for his people is what will make this come about. God will send a child. Isn't that surprising? Tiglath-Pileser III is mighty and vicious and a terror. And God doesn't overcome viciousness and terror with greater viciousness and terror. He overcomes it with a child. What a surprise. God will send a child to accomplish this. Justice and peace are on the move. Today marks the first day of Advent, as we've celebrated so far in worship. It's that time when we celebrate the coming of Christ, that son who has been born, the child who has been given. We remember that there was a time in our collective people of God history when people were waiting. Isaiah prophesied this over 700 years before Jesus was born. 700 years of waiting. And then that child was given, and Jesus was born. Jesus has, in fact, come. The waiting for that first part is done. But we still wait, don't we? Because this passage that we read of judgment and hope, this passage talks about Jesus at the beginning, he's a light in the darkness, he's a child that's been given. Those things have already happened, haven't they? Jesus was already born. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus already was the light who came into the darkness when he went to Capernaum and began his ministry. That part of this prophecy has been fulfilled. But that middle part, that hasn't been fulfilled yet. We are still waiting. We are still in Advent, waiting for the coming of the one 
who will free us from oppression and end discord and violence. We are waiting for those parts of the prophecy to be fulfilled. All the reasons why we weep and despair, all the reasons why we worry, to be wiped away. And here's my question, do you believe it? I know we're all here in church, yep, we believe it. But do you believe it? Do you believe that he's coming again? And are you waiting? Are you still waiting? What does it look like to still wait with joy? Because that's what we're called, that's how we're called to wait still. To wait with joy. I was talking about this with my daughter on the way here. We were talking about waiting, and I was sharing with her a little bit about what I was going to say this morning, and she said, that's interesting because I hate waiting. And I said, oh, baby, join the club. Nobody likes to wait. Waiting feels like a giant waste of time, doesn't it? Waiting feels like you're in between, like nothing's happening, like you're stuck. It feels, makes you feel impatient. That's typically how waiting makes us feel. And yet biblical waiting is a little different. Biblical waiting has a fullness to it, has a purpose to it. It's not a waste. It's not an empty time. It's a purposeful time. And so as we wrap up this morning, I want to share with you an image of biblical waiting. Years ago, a dear friend of mine wanted a baby. And she applied for adoption. And then she got news that she was going to be a mom. And she was waiting for that baby, waiting for that baby to come. But it wasn't an empty waiting. It wasn't a purposeless waiting. It was a full waiting. It was a busy waiting. She was busy preparing her home, preparing her life, when a baby's on the way, you look at everything differently. Stairs look different. Covered doors look different. Pokey edges look different. You see the world differently when you are waiting for a child to come into your home. She looked at her work differently. She looked at her friendships differently. She looked at her time differently. She was waiting for this baby, and it changed everything. It was part of every conversation she had, those were great days. It was a joy, and she worked hard, and she was busy, and it was a little overwhelming, but it was exciting. She was so joy-filled, waiting for her baby, busy, waiting for her baby. That's what biblical waiting is like. It's full of joy, expectation, thrill, hope. It's not bleak. It's not uncertain. It's trusting in the goodness of God. That's what biblical waiting is like. And so, in this season of waiting, my encouragement to you is to wait like that. Wait with hope and wait with joy. Let the coming of Jesus, both his first coming and his second coming. 
fill you with such anticipation that it shapes the way you look at every part of your life. You say, the one who's bringing justice is coming. The one who is the prince of peace is coming. What does that mean for the way we live? What does that mean for the way I interact with my family, my friends, my coworkers? What does it mean for the way we meet the hard circumstances of our lives these days? What does it mean? When we wait that way, it changes our lives. It's purposeful. It's rich. So friends, don't despair when things look bleak. Because God has given us reasons to rejoice. To rejoice in all circumstances. Because Jesus has come, and he will come again. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your son Jesus who has come, who is your kept promise to us. We thank you for Jesus who has inaugurated this kingdom that brings us hope that we will be released in this world from oppression of all sorts. We thank you and praise you for this kingdom begun through your son Jesus, a kingdom of peace and justice and righteousness and mercy, goodness and love. Lord, we want to be a part of it. We want to grow this kingdom in your name, Jesus. So fill us with your Holy Spirit. Equip us to wait well, to wait with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.